Amen. Well, I know that our bulletins this evening say that we're going to read the Old Testament passage first. However, let us begin with the New Testament epistle passage, beginning with Ephesians chapter 2, and then we'll work our way back to Micah chapter 6. So please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the epistle to the Ephesians chapter 2. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. It says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and in sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together with, uh, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us, in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at the time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances." so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now therefore... You are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God and the Spirit. Amen. Now please turn with me to Micah chapter 6. Hear now what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint. And you have strong foundations on the earth, for the Lord has a complaint against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? 
And how have I wearied you? Testify against me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. And I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Acacia Grove to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? Oh, he has shown you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. The Lord's voice cries to the city. Wisdom shall see your name. Hear the rod. Who has appointed it? Are there yet the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the short measure that is an abomination? Shall I count pure those with the wicked scales and with the bag of deceitful weights? For her rich men are full of violence. Her inhabitants have spoken lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I will also make you sick by striking you, by making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied. Hunger shall be in your midst. You may carry some away, but shall not save them. And what you do rescue, I will give over to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread the olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. And make sweet wine, but not drink wine. For the statutes of Omri are kept. All the works of Ahab's house are done. And you walk... And their counsels, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. Therefore, you shall bear the reproach of my people. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Almighty Lord. Creator that once delivered your timely word through the lowly donkey and declared that even the rocks shall cry out if the sons of men hold their peace. You have bestowed upon me the weighty task of delivering your word to your people this very evening. May the remarks that sound from my lips not be my own, but be directed to the hearts of those that are within the sound of my voice by the Holy Ghost. Convict us this evening to recall and hold fast to the covenant that was established with our fathers. And kiss the son, lest he be angry and we perish on the wayside. Assist our worship. Assist the preaching. We pray this to the eternal Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, who exists ever as one God, world without end. Amen. I'd like to begin this evening by posing a question to all of you present. What would you say is the definition of Christian piety. I'll leave you to ponder that for a moment and we'll come back to revisit it shortly, but now I know that this is not a part of a sermon series and that there are here is that, that some here may uh, very well be left back in Leviticus in their Bible reading plan this year. So to provide a little background to our passage, Micah is one of the minor prophets of Israel within the Old Testament. 
and was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah. Within the first five chapters of this book, the Lord has commissioned Micah to pronounce judgments upon the people of Israel for their consistent rebellion against him. With the regular refrain of promising future restoration, just within the previous two chapters of leading up to ours, we are given great details of a future kingdom and the coming Messiah that will come to inaugurate it to redeem the people of Israel. But then we arrive here at chapter 6 where the Lord redirects our gaze from what was to come back to the context of the people of Israel at the time. And within the opening words of our passage, the language paints for us the picture of a courtroom scene. If you look with me at the words plead in verse 1 and complaint used twice in verse 2 by the New King James, these are legal terms, meaning to contend or state your case in court proceedings. They are actually the same root uh, term in the Hebrew, rib. Just simply, one is the verb form and the other is the noun form, much like our English words defense and defend, as in we provide a defense, the noun, and defending is something that you do, the verb. But as we have established, the court is brought into session, and this is done under the command and authority of Jehovah our God, and he calls upon the mountains and the foundations of creation to listen in and bear witness to the case. For the mountains and the foundations of the earth have been there from the beginning, being inhabited not only by various creatures since the dawn of creation, but also the spiritual powers and dominions that have been brought to rule over the various lands of the earth. For all of these bear witness to the power and faithfulness of our Lord, even declaring his glory to us in Psalm, as Psalm 19 states, and all creatures, be they animate or inanimate, be they animal, man, or angelic, all are now being subpoenaed to the courtroom as the Lord lists off his indictments. And who is the defendant against whom he is bringing these charges? None other than the people of Israel, the Old Testament church. Verse 3, after the court has been called into session, the Lord takes a seat and gives the defendant the floor to plead their case. He asks the rhetorical questions of, what have I done to you to deserve your disobedience and irreverence? Can any man truly demand anything from the Lord and state that the Lord's actions toward him give him justification to sin? Does any man have any such boldness to take him up on this offer and plead his case? Surely not. Job began to demand such from the Lord, and when the Lord actually came and spoke to him, what was Job's reaction? Trembling in fear. He realized that he had no leg to stand on before the Lord. He shut his own mouth. The Lord stated to Job, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him hear it. To which Job replies, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will not proceed any further. So as you can imagine, the people of Israel follow suit and provide no answer here. So in the face of a disgruntled people and their ingratitude, Jehovah motions to state his case. He calls for the people of Israel to remember his covenant promises and then proceeds to put his cards on the table by providing examples of his fulfilled promises to their fathers. Since we cannot show him any evil or wrong that he has done to us, he takes the time to remind us of the goodness that he has done instead. Truly, 
He has provided us with nothing but abundant compassion. What rich mercy he has poured out upon us. Here he is reminding the people of Israel that it is because of him that they were given prophets that would lead them out of the bondage of Egypt. It is because of him that they were not utterly destroyed by their enemies in the wilderness. Remember the accounts of the prophet Balaam being uh, commissioned by King Balak on the plans of Moab to curse the people of Israel. But the Lord promised to their father Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And in this, he instead turned the curse of Balaam into a blessing. How good it is for the Lord to turn a curse, a reproach into a blessing. Take, for instance, the account of Elizabeth and her conceiving of St. John, the forerunner of Christ. She cried out to the Lord and thanked him for taking away her reproach before men with her womb being opened and being gifted with a child. Think of the curses which were once placed upon us in this room when we were once alienated from God through our sins. While we were enemies of God, our Lord Christ took the curse that was due us upon himself. And as a result, as we just read in Ephesians 2, he has raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, let me ask you this. Why would the most high God seek to turn the curses of his people into blessings. Don't overthink it. The answer truly is quite simple. It's the same reason why any father would love to shower his children with blessings and good gifts. Deuteronomy 23 actually provides us an exact answer. It tells us that he turned Balaam's curses into blessings because he loves us. Oh, how sweet and oh, how tender are even the reproves that he gives to his people because he does them with a father's caring touch. He loves you. I know that we as Presbyterians often get a little bit autistic and act like we don't know what love is. But, my friends, think about that for a moment. Children, the eternal, invisible, and only wise God has deemed it good to come down to our level in order to establish his covenant with you. Why? Because he loves you. And this is why he walked with our forefathers through the wilderness and into the land of promise. And here is referenced two places of significance within the wilderness account. Acacia Grove, as the New King James renders it, or Shittim, uh, depending on your translation, was the last place where the people of Israel camped in the wilderness before entering into Canaan. And Gilgal was the first place that they set up camp within the promised land. So this is once again the Lord recalling his people back to his providential, uh, providential direction and care for them. And what is Israel's response to the Lord laying out his tender mercies and loving kindness toward them? We see it here in verses 6 and 7. When someone is being charged with a wrong, but the sword of conviction has not yet pierced their heart, it is a common response to retort with hyperbole and exaggeration. Has anyone in here experienced this? How about being the one that does it? For example, when a situation goes sour and a husband brings to their wife how something that they did led to the unfortunate result, and the wife gets exasperated, throws up her arms in the air and says, ah, sure, it's always my fault, right? 
Or think about the times when a husband is busy, his family needs him to spend time with them, and the only thing that he has care to say is, sure, let me just not go to work, cancel this appointment, let me just drop everything I'm doing and just sit here, as if that is what is needed in the moment, as if that's what they're looking for. The people know that this is not what the Lord told them is needed for restoration. And yet, they, all they have to say is, by all means, Lord, let me just give you thousands of ram sacrifices. You want rivers of oil? Sure. You got it. Heck, if you're going to be like this, I'll even give you my firstborn. Notice the further and further intensity of the exaggerations as they go along as well, moving from animal sacrifices all the way up to offering up human life as a sacrifice. It's absurd. What the people of Israel are essentially doing is rather than being direct, they're using irony to try to thrust the blame back upon the Lord for their discontentment with him and their covenant. But within verse 8, we hear the words of the prophet Micah cut through, essentially telling them, knock it off. You know what God demands from you. He does not want your sacrifice. He demands obedience. Your obedience. Just like the words that Samuel used to rebuke Saul in 1 Samuel 15, which Trent preached on just last month. To obey is better than sacrifice. But what does obedience or the good that Micah mentions here look like? He gives us the answer. To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Which none of the answers that the people of Israel provided in their defense exemplifies any of these three attributes, do they? They're trying to appease rather than repent and be uh, reconciled. And throughout the rest of this chapter, the Lord lists off various ways in which the people go against and defile these three virtues with their actions. And he also pronounces their punishments. They commit fraud. They are full of violence. They were deceitful. These all sound familiar to our own day, don't they? And they obeyed the statutes of Omri and Ahab, both of whom are former kings of Israel that were renowned for their wickedness. About Omri in 1 Kings 16, it says that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and was more wicked than any other king that had come before him. But then... Later in that same chapter, it tells us that his son Ahab advanced even beyond his father's wickedness. So these two men are being called forth as examples for the way in which the people of Israel are behaving, doing what is right in their own eyes and walking in pride rather than walking humbly with their God. Walk humbly with your God. Here in this verse, the Lord is restating words that are very similar to those that he gave to Abraham at the founding of the covenant of grace in Genesis 17. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. So the people of Israel were well acquainted with what the Lord required of them. And they were just trying to play the fool. They knew that they were covenant breakers, and it is because they broke the covenant that they were now under the fires of judgment. And notice the judgments that are pronounced, especially hone in on the word, first words of uh, verse 14 for a moment. It's not exactly something that you would usually expect to be a punishment pronounced upon a people, is it? It says, you shall eat but not be satisfied. Right? 
Normally it is that they will not have food to eat because of a famine or something of the like. But the Lord says, oh, you will eat, but you'll never be satisfied from it. You'll continue to be hungry. Children, imagine you've come inside after a long day of playing outside in the hot sun and you're starving and thirsty. Your mom sets in front of you a couple of slices of delicious looking pizza and a glass of water. But as you start to dig in and eat a few slices of pizza and you drink a few glasses of water, you sit there for a moment and it begins to set in and you realize there's not even a slight edge being taken off your hunger and thirst there. Now think with me for a moment about our own current context. The average American, including every one of us in this very room, has been raised within a society that is run by consumerism. We're not taught to produce anything for ourselves, but instead leave it for someone else to do so that we can buy it. But we are bottomless pits of consumption, and never does the next purchase bring about any sort of satisfaction. We eat and we eat, we consume and we consume, but never do we ever reach a point where we stop and say to ourselves, that's enough. No. Because we have disoriented ourselves by making ourselves believe that all of this stuff, all of this plastic, is what will bring about the rest and contentment that we are looking for. We have turned the stuff that we consume into our perceived idea of what is the highest good. Now let me ask you this. Have you ever considered that this is actually a form of God's judgment upon our nation? That this is a punishment for the wickedness that we have, uh, as a people, have subjected ourselves to when we turn our gazes away from the face of God and toward futile things. He removes his presence and gives us over to our, the desires of our hearts. But the problem with that is that the desires of men's hearts are infinite. And that which is infinite itself, uh, I'm sorry, are infinite and limitless. And no, matter, no, amount of finite, uh, inf, no amount of finite things can be added up to equal infinity. It takes that which is infinite itself to satisfy the infinite appetite. My friends, this insatiable hunger is in our midst, and it will never go away until it is redirected toward the only object that can fulfill it. When the Lord uh, uses, uh, what the Lord uses to pronounce judgment upon the people of Israel within this passage is used to pronounce judgment upon us today. This is not simply an Old Testament issue. Christ recalls verse 8 in his rebuke of the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He declared, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. Sound familiar? These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. He rebuked the Pharisees for their continuing to offer up sacrifice without obedience, for they do not do justly, love mercy, nor walk humbly with their God. They were more concerned with external acts of religion than allowing the meekness, humility, and gratitude that comes with true religion to penetrate through to their souls. And for restitution of our wrongs against him, he would ask for nothing but your hearts. My friends, our Lord would not have your tithes nor your beautiful harmonies and offering up of hymns if he does not first have your heart. St. Augustine once said, you ask what you should offer. Offer yourself. For what else does the Lord seek of you but you? 
Because of all earthly creatures, he has made nothing better than you. He seeks you yourself from yourself because you have lost yourself. End quote. So to circle back around and restate my question from the beginning of my sermon, what would you say is the definition of Christian piety? The whole of Christian piety in practice can be succinctly summed up in these very words. To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. For obedience is greater than sacrifice. Why? Because obedience is not sacrificing anything but yourself to the Lord. This is what the Apostle Paul is meaning in Romans 12 when he tells us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. And so, as a final point, let me remind you that there is a great reward for this obedience. Christ tells us in his Sermon on the Mount that it is they that are merciful that shall receive mercy. He says that the peacemakers are they who shall be called the sons of God. He says that it is the meek that are the ones that shall inherit the earth. We ought not to find burdensome that which is pleasing to the Lord, for his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Amen. Let's pray. Most merciful Lord, you have given your instruction to us this evening. I pray that the feeble words of my mouth have been glorifying to you. Help us to walk humbly with you all the days of our lives. We are thankful for your patience and your steadfast love for us. And that we would be content to offer up ourselves as living sacrifices to you, in return to you. O oh, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, you who exists ever as one God, world without end. And assist us in praying with the prayer that Christ taught us to pray, saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 